over 40 years ago, a young Presbyterian clergyman who was about my age at the time stood on the floor of the General Assembly and held up a sign that read, Is anyone else out there gay? Reverend David Sent's hand-lettered sign sparked the first gathering of the Presbyterian Gay Caucus, one of the original groups that formed what we now know as More Light Presbyterians. As some of you may know, the first hopes of this group were simple, to confront the silence on the issue of homosexuality by getting together persons who identified as gay or those who supported gay people participating in the life of the church to break through the isolation and create a sense of community which transcended mistreatment by congregations and presbyteries where gay and lesbian people were seeking to serve the church. At first, the dream was simple, but prophetic, to gather together and form community, to counter the experience of rejection by their hometowns and home churches. On the day that the marriage amendment and authoritative interpretation which allowed ministers to marry same-sex couples passed at the General Assembly almost two years ago, I had the chance to meet Reverend Hal Porter, who had served a church that was one of the first churches to become more light. He told me a story that in the 1980s, the More Light Church's network held a conference with all the churches that had already voted to become more light. There were several dozen at the time. And at the conference, Reverend Porter told me that he spoke as part of a panel on the hopes and vision for this budding LGBT faith movement. He remembered that at one point on the panel, someone offered that perhaps the more light group, could work towards affirmation of same-sex marriage by the denomination. He told me that those gathered went completely silent, with only a few people emitting some nervous laughter, because in the mid-1980s, the idea seemed so far away from their reality that that same-sex marriage would not only be recognized, but affirmed by the church that it seemed almost impossible. But on the night that not one, but two polity changes were passed by the General Assembly by an overwhelming margin, Reverend Porter looked me in the eye and said that he truly believed during that panel that this day in the denomination would never come. The prophetic vision for a church that celebrated the love and commitment of same-sex couples was so far beyond its time that some ministers were run out of their congregations for officiating same-sex weddings, and countless gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender congregants felt unwelcome in their own sanctuaries 
for daring to dream that their covenants made in love to one another would be held as sacred. Now, watching the advancement of the rights, recognition, and affirmation afforded to LGBT persons in the past three years has almost felt like watching a prophecy come true at the speed of light. Who would have imagined just 10 years ago that the Supreme Court would rule that marriage discrimination was unconstitutional and with the weight of one decision grant same-sex marriage recognition nationwide? In addition to that, laws around fairness and housing, employment, adoption, and health care have further protections for LGBT people from discrimination. Suddenly, the founding prophetic visions for the gay and lesbian movement for inclusion and recognition have nearly been fulfilled. Unfortunately, Jesus didn't mention what to do once the prophecy was fulfilled as he was hightailing it out of Nazareth. But I believe the clue for what to do lies in our first Corinthians text. For many of us, the litany of love's virtues is a familiar one, often read at weddings, or if you're my grandmother, this text is cross-stitched on a pillow in your living room. However, the trouble with the English translations of this text is that it gets the enumeration of what love is, tends to read like a static list that gets checked off and moved on with. Patience, kind, next. In the text itself, the word love is the subject of the verb, which might translate more accurately to Love shows patience. Love acts with kindness. What Paul is trying to communicate is that love is an ongoing action. And he claims at the end that it never fails. As a way to say, love never ends. Love does not just pack up its bags and leave when things get hard or when it seems the work is done. Friends, I believe that we are in a moment where our love for one another is showing us the next way forward. While we celebrate both the tangible and symbolic progress made towards LGBT welcome in our churches and in our communities, we know that the reality of physical and emotional abuse experienced by LGBT people is ongoing. Gay and lesbian youth are still being kicked out of their homes for coming out. Transgender women are still being murdered. And in many states, you can still lose your job or be denied housing just for being gay. Yes, some prophetic visions have been fulfilled. But I believe we're in a moment of the course of this movement for LGBT justice and social justice where we need a new prophetic vision that extends to a horizon beyond what we can already see. The movement to welcome LGBT persons into the life of the church was founded upon the radical notion that gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender persons were created in the image of God, 
to counter the prevailing assumption that somehow we were an abomination in the eyes of God. The hope then was that LGBT people would be welcomed into the life of the church, just like any other brother or sister in Christ. What a revolutionary statement that we are all God's children. The continuing act of revelation of God's children at the beginning of this movement was towards further recognition of who was included in the umbrella of God's welcome. As I've traveled to more light churches over the past two and a half years since I stepped into the role as executive director, doing so as an openly transgender man called to serve the Presbyterian Church, I've come to see some of the challenges with focusing solely on welcome as the locus for change within the denomination. I remember a conversation with a member of a Moorlight church that was another one of the early churches to declare that there was yet more light to break forth on the scriptures around homosexuality. And as such, that church was not going to exclude anyone from membership or leadership within the church. This gentleman recounted the history of the congregation's welcome and said, well, first we welcomed gay people, then lesbians, and then we learned about bisexual people, and now transgender people? He threw up his hands in semi-exasperation and said, what's next? With a sigh almost too deep for words, I suddenly saw how the founding prophetic vision of this movement had run its course, allowing one identity at a time into who was included in the kingdom of God could lead to this frustrated exasperation of who is next, what don't we know yet. I believe that the prophetic vision calling us forward requires us to refocus on who God is as a way to understand the fullness of what God is calling us to. So who or what do we say God is? Naming and describing God has perhaps been the project of religion since the beginning. The creation story in Genesis describes God as Elohim, as a plurality of aspects, as we. God comes to Moses and is described as Yahweh, I am who I am. Jesus calls God Abba, meaning father. And in the Psalms, God is described as a potter, as a knitter forming us in our mother's womb, as a creator of life and a destroyer of enemies. We, as a people called to follow God, have attempted for 5,000 years or more to describe who God is. In Barbara Brown Taylor's sermon, Three Hands Clapping, she quotes a colleague who says, when human beings try to describe God, we are like oysters trying to describe a ballerina. We simply do not have the equipment to understand something so utterly beyond us. But that's never stopped us from trying. 
The directory for worship in our Presbyterian Book of Order puts it this way. When people respond to God and communicate to each other their experiences of God, they must use symbolic means, for God transcends creation and cannot be reduced to anything within it. No merely human symbols can be adequate to comprehend the fullness of God, and none is identical to the reality of God. It's not an oyster metaphor, but it'll do. I was raised in a church, the Presbyterian church, that did its best to try and not limit who God was, but still called God he and him without much variation. While we are God's creation, and therefore by our virtue of being alive, know something of who God is, the temptation we have to avoid is making God in the image of us. To assume that because we have legs and arms and a beating heart, that God does as well. I was watching the show The Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson when, a prophet, what, when what a prophetic vision for the next era of the work for LGBT justice and inclusion hit me. In the very first episode of the show, which, if you haven't seen it, it's a nerdy science documentary on the nature of the universe, Neil deGrasse Tyson demonstrates just how vast our universe truly is. He starts us on Earth and then zooms out into our solar system and then out into our galaxy and then beyond our galaxies to other galaxies and then talks about how even with all of this vastness, the universe is still expanding even further. Suddenly, I caught a glimpse of an ongoing, unfurling love, a hope that points us towards just how vast our universe, yes, but how vast God, the creator of the universe, is. My tiny oyster brain saw for a moment a twirling ballerina, and my jaw dropped. It had never really hit me like this that God is much, much bigger than we can ever imagine. We are created in the image of a God of abundance, of limitless possibilities and expansion. Faced with this brief glimpse at semi-comprehension, I saw what such an understanding of God might mean for the work towards LGBT inclusion in the church and the world. While one possible response to seeing a glimpse of such an abundant God might cause some of us to batten down the hatches in fear of such an expansive vision of a loving creator, the other response to which I believe we are called is to confront a God of abundance with awe and wonder not just at who God is, but also who we are as God's creation. We are so much more than we can ever hope to name, that we only have symbols to describe who we are. In the beginning of the welcoming church movement, it was prophetic 
to welcome one identity in at a time. As we were just beginning to say out loud for the first time the words gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender. The trouble is, welcome started to be expressed as a series of ors. Bisexual or transgender, straight or gay. And not the fullness of and. We are so much more than any one identity could possibly describe. We are abundant because our creator is abundant. And this abundance doesn't just apply to LGBT people. This vision is for every body. The vision is not just a world where all are welcome, but for a world where all respond in awe and wonder to the fullness of God's abundance and in turn welcome the abundance of who we are created to be. This is the love that does not fail and calls us forward towards more light. Amen.